You know, the word of God is so practical. <laughs> it's a beautifully practical holy book that addresses the topics that we contend with. It doesn't merely look at the theoretical theologically. It looks at the rubber meets the road for each and every one of us. And this morning, the topic that comes up in James chapter 1 is so relevant we deal with this topic multiple times every single day, and the topic is temptation. Let me ask you, how many times have you been tempted since lunch yesterday? How many times have you been tempted from leaving your house till getting to the church parking lot? How many times have you been tempted since you took your place in a pew for this service? We all are tempted all the time. Someone says that opportunity knocks, but you know what? Temptation leans on the doorbell. Temptation is constant. We're tempted a lot. In first chapter of James, verses 13 to 15, short little verses are going to give us the anatomy of every single temptation we'll face. And just like the doctors who care for us medically have to understand the physical human body anatomy to treat us, we as believers visiting on earth with our citizenships in heaven, contending with temptations, need to know the anatomy of a typical temptation so we don't give in to it and sin. And these verses are going to help us. But before we get to the temptation and the details that these verses give us about temptations, I want to contrast a test, also known as a trial, and a temptation. These are very different. A trial does not equal a temptation. A temptation does not equal a trial. They're different. Trials are used by God. Temptations are used by Satan. Trials anticipate us passing. Temptations anticipate us failing. Trials reveal godly character. Temptations expose our sin nature and our flesh. Trials build us up and temptations tear us down. Some of you are old enough to remember Ralph Nader. And if you don't remember Ralph Nader as a consumer advocate, there are other consumer advocates now who are doing their thing in America to uh, test out products and find what's wrong. The General Motors Corporation, when they come out with a new model of a truck, they try it, they test it for safety standards and fuel emission and all these kinds of things. General Motors Company tries their truck model to show that it passes and that it's worth buying. Ralph Nader and consumer advocates who are suspicious about everything that's manufactured look at those same GM trucks finding fault. They tempt those trucks, if you use the analogy. And so trials do not equal temptations. God tries us, but God never tempts us. This morning in our anatomy of temptations, we're going to see the text present three things, all beginning with O. The origin of temptation, the operation of temptation, and the outcomes of temptations. The origin, the operation, and the outcomes of temptations. Of course, every temptation that you will face has an origin. And so the question becomes, who or what is the origin of your temptation? 
Well, verses 13 and 14 tell us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Every temptation has an origin, and it's not God. It's our own lust. Every temptation also has an operating system or a way of working on us. And what is the operation common to all temptations? Verse 14 sheds light on that. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. You don't have lust in a person, you don't have temptation. You don't have an operating system for temptation if you don't have lust in your own hearts. And we all have lusts in our own hearts because we haven't seen Jesus face to face through the rapture of the church or through a physical resurrection. And last in the passage, every temptation has two possible outcomes. What are those two outcomes? And what are we to expect if we have one outcome and what are we to expect if we have a different outcome? These verses will answer these questions about origin, operation, and outcomes of temptation. So let's begin with origin because the verses before us begin with the origin of temptation. And if you look at 13 and 14 one more time, you read with me, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And so watch it here. The origin of temptation is our own fleshly lusts. That's the origin of every temptation you or I will ever face. It's our own lusts. You know, it's easy, but it's wrong for us to think that God has something to do with the temptations that we face. He has nothing to do with the temptations that we face. Why? Because he doesn't tempt anyone. Why does he not tempt anyone? Reason one, God himself cannot be tempted by evil. God himself cannot be tempted by evil. The Greek word which translates tempt here in these verses carries the idea of soliciting to evil. Now, when you're at the corner of Mackey and Shirley and people come to your window when you're at a red light, They are soliciting, they're begging you for money. Temptation is begging you to do evil. It's soliciting the doing of evil. Temptations, whatever the face they wear, they canvas us to do sinning. They appeal to us to enter into sin. And no wonder prostitutes are said to solicit Sexual intimacy for marriage, for, uh, not for marriage, outside of marriage, excuse me. Temptation is the solicitation to evil. And with this understanding of the concept of tempting, it is obvious, I hope, that a purely, consistently, always holy God cannot possibly be solicited himself into evil. And not only that, Evil will never be on sale for God that he would purchase it. God cannot be tempted by evil, and God does not tempt us to do evil. You say, what about the Lord Jesus Christ at the outset of his public ministry? What about him there in the Judean desert 
being tempted 40 days and 40 nights without food by Satan. What about that? Well, Satan thought that he was tempting the Lord Jesus Christ to sin. But in reality, God was testing Jesus Christ to prove that he could not sin as God. That term that theologians use for the fact that Jesus, as the God-man, could not sin is called impeccability. Jesus Christ has impeccability. He's incapable of sinning. He did not sin because Jesus could not sin. Jesus Christ was tempted only in this viewpoint of Satan. Jesus Christ was not actually tempted, but rather he was tried because God cannot be tempted. Maybe I'll illustrate it this way. There was a large company years and years and years ago when the Union Pacific Railroad was under construction and there was an elaborate trestle bridge that was built over a large canyon in the western United States. It was in an effort to join by train St. Louis and California. And before that trestle bridge was open for trains for commercial use, the engineer of the bridge wanted to test things out And he loaded a train with extra cars and heavy equipment to double that particular train's normal payload. And the train was slowly driven out onto this trestle bridge over the canyon, and it was parked in the middle of the bridge where it was left for one day. One worker complained, are you trying to see if we can break this bridge? No way, the engineer said, I'm trying to prove that the bridge won't break. That's what happened in the Judean wilderness with Jesus. It was proven that he wouldn't break. Christ's wilderness interaction with Satan proved that Jesus won't break down and sin. Because God, who cannot be tempted, never tempts anyone to evil. So the first reason that temptations aren't originating in God, is that God himself cannot be tempted by evil. The second reason that God never tempts is this. God is holy, and he has no desire to encourage anyone to evil. Look back again at verse 13, would you? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. When we understand that this concept of tempt means to solicit to evil, means to beg to do evil, we know that beyond the shadow of any doubt that our true and pure God never is involved ever in tempting anyone to do evil. Remember, it was Satan in the Garden of Eden who tempted Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. And her own lusts in her own heart combined with the bait of the fruit, and she gave in to temptation, and so did her husband, Adam. God didn't tempt them. Satan, Lucifer, tempted them. Let me illustrate this whole concept that God, because he's holy, has no desire to encourage anyone to doing anything evil. Doctors don't urge their patients to smoke because they know that smoking cigarettes causes lung cancer. And parents don't urge their teenagers to drink and drive Because parents know that impaired driving leads to highway fatalities. And God doesn't tempt us to sin because God's son, his very best, had to die to solve a sin problem. God never never tempts anyone to do evil. 
Well, if God doesn't ever put himself in the place of being the originator of the temptation that we face, who is the originator? Or what is the originator of all of our temptations? Verse 14 again. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. If you were circling a word in verse 14, if you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to circle the little preposition by. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. No temptation that you ever will face, no temptation that you currently face is originating outside of you. It's originating by the lust within you. You know, we have a rather elaborate alarm system that's necessary here in the building. And the last person on staff who leaves this building has a code for the Sure Alarm system, and they code out their code, and that sets the alarm for every entry door and every window in the building. But if there is a bad guy lurking in the Earl Weech Auditorium, hiding in a classroom, when the last person in the church building leaves and codes out the alarm, when that person starts to move around inside the alarmed church building, the alarm is going to go off because there are motion sensors all around the church building to detect intruders who aren't to be in the building once it's alarmed. I'm here to tell you this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, that all of the temptations that each of you face are not outside intruders getting through the windows and the doors of your life. They're an inside job. All of the temptations that you and I face, they originate in our own lusts, within our own hearts, within our own minds, in our flesh. That's the origin of all temptation. Temptation is an inside job. It's an inside job. Our fleshly lusts are the origin of our temptations every single time. Sure, Satan uses the combination of our fleshful lusts and desires and our circumstantial allurements to sin. Sure, he does. But by all means, we need to know that we wouldn't be allured to sin if we didn't have problematic, lustful desires in our hearts. Temptation starts as an inside job. So this is the origin of our temptations. And this brings us next to the second part of our outlines this morning, which is the operation of temptations. How does the temptation operate in your life? How does it go about its nasty business? What is the operation of all temptations? How do these invitations to do evil on us and in us work? There are two fishing terms used in verse 14. Two fishing terms. But each one is tempted when he is carried away, carried away, we could translate dragged away, and enticed by his own lust. You know how you catch a fish? First of all, you entice it with something it wants to eat, a lure or live fish bait. You entice it. And then once you've enticed it to take a bite on that hook, you have tackle 
to get it, drag it away from its habitat in the sea and put it in your boat for dinner. That's how temptations are. They entice us. They lock into the evil desires and lusts of our hearts like Velcro. And then they drag us away. That's the operation of a temptation. Bait and tackle, entice and carry or drag away. I did some research on mahi-mahi. I've eaten it. It's very tasty fish. They can grow to be 80 pounds. Did you know that? A bull mahi-mahi male fish could be 80 pounds. But let's say you hook on to a 70-pound mahi-mahi dolphin. <laughs> You're going to need a good tackle system to get that fish on board. I'm told that mahi-mahi generally like trolling lures, rubber skirts, feathers, and rapella plugs. That's what mahi-mahi like. What do you like? What baits are you prone to be interested in? Selfishness, idols, laziness, also known as sloth, greed, food. What baits do you find most interesting? Time wasters like television, Facebook, YouTube. What baits do you find interesting? Sensual things? other people's approval, gaining status, having material things, shopping. We all have different baits that interest us. And God wants us to be mindful of that. Satan knows which baits to use, by the way, on each of us. There's a Jamaican saying, I'm told, that Satan knows where you've tied your goat. You know someone getting your goat? Satan knows where you tie up your goat. And so, temptations, the way they operate, the way they work on all of us is simply this equation. Are you ready? Lust plus bait equals temptation. Lust plus bait equals temptation. It starts with lust, as I said. Lust plus bait equals temptation. If you have only lust and no bait, you don't have temptation. Let's say by way of an example, if I was just wanting to go snow skiing so much living here in Nassau, I just want to go snow skiing. Well, because there are no mountains on New Providence and there's no snow, if I want to go skiing, I have to buy an airplane ticket to the Rocky Mountains in Western Canada. That costs money. I have to book a hotel for the days I'll be skiing. That costs money. I have to rent ski equipment. That costs money. I have to pay food at the restaurants. That costs money. On and on and on it goes. And I step back from that. I say, as much as I want to go snow skiing, I don't think that's in my budget. So that is a situation where I have a desire to go snow skiing, but I don't really have a practical way I can do it. That's lust without bait. It's not a temptation. Similarly, only having bait with no lust is also not temptation. Can I make a confession to you about vegetables? I cannot stand Brussels sprouts. How many of you are with me on that? Amen. Preach it. They smell like dirty feet to me. I'm sorry. I hate Brussels sprouts. 
So if someone told me there was a skid of frozen Brussels sprouts at Dalbina's, I would have no temptation to steal it. You have to have lust plus bait to have a temptation. If you only have lust without bait, you don't have a temptation. If you only have bait without lust, you don't have a temptation. But when you have both, watch it. When you have lust in your heart and external bait that you find attractive and interesting, then you have a problem. I want you to imagine in the sea this afternoon, Mrs. Tuna. She's a big yellowfin tuna. She's a lovely mother. She has lots of little tuna babies and children. She's raising in the sea. And Mrs. Tuna talks to her little son, Tommy Tuna. And she says, Tommy, there are bad guys up on the surface in boats that want to catch you, that want to cut you up and want to eat you. And so therefore, Tommy, if you see a herring swimming in an unnatural way, don't eat it. There's a hook in it. And Tommy goes swimming around and he says, wow, that's a good advice. I'll remember that, not to eat a herring that doesn't look like it's swimming naturally. And then he's swimming along and he sees a, he sees a herring. And it's a nice herring. He said, but I'm not going to eat that herring because of what my mommy said. I don't want to take the rest. So he swims away. Good for him. And then he circles back. He says, well, let me have another look at that herring to see if it was swimming unnaturally or not. So he circles back and he looks at that herring. It looked better now the second time than he saw it the first time. And he was pretty sure it was swimming naturally. So whoomp. And Tommy became a tuna breakfast for Nassau. Lust plus bait equals temptation. Like the lady who was partial to sweets, and her doctor said she needed to lose some weight for better health, and her particular downfall was a certain bakery downtown that made the best chocolate eclairs that the world knows. And so she just said on her way home from work when she usually bought her eclairs, she said, Lord, I'm not going to buy an eclair today because I know the doctor doesn't want me to and I don't want to give in to the temptation. And as she was approaching the bakery, she was driving and an idea came to her and she prayed. She said, Lord, if it is your will for me to have an eclair this afternoon, please give me a parking space in front of this bakery. And she only had to circle the block eight times to get the parking space. Lust in the heart plus bait equals temptation. And we are to flee temptation, flee the bait. As I've said before, uh, each of us has certain baits that we find more attractive. Your baits might not be bait to me. My baits might not be bait to you. Um, There are money baits. There are fame baits. There are power baits. There are pleasure baits. There are lust of the flesh baits. There are lust of the eye baits. There are boastful pride of life baits. But do you want to know how you figure out what baits attract you? It's real simple. It's easy. You figure out what your default mind goes to with respect to thinking about evil when your mind is free to think about anything. When your mind is free to think about anything and you start to think about evil, what is that evil? We all have default positions of our flesh in our minds and how we think. And whatever your mind turns to most consistently when you are free to think about anything and you're not walking in the Holy Spirit, whatever that bait is, that is your bait. And that's where Satan knows you tie your goat. There was a young pastor who was rather handsome. And he was being mentored by an older pastor 
And the older pastor warned him and said, Clyde, you have to watch yourself with the sexual temptation of women in the church. And Clyde quite confidently said, oh, but there's safety in numbers. And the pastor said, but there's better safety in Exodus. Some of you will get that in a minute. You got to take off. You got to take off. Joseph with Potiphar's wife seducing him in Egypt. He didn't have a conversation with her. He took off. He took off so fast that she grabbed his toga and pulled it right off of him and he ran off naked. Know your bait. Don't bite it. Know what your default evil thoughts are and walk away from them. So let's review. So far, the anatomy of a a, a temptation. So far, the origin of all temptations is our own fleshly lust. It's an inside job. The second thing is the operation of a temptation is quite simple. Lust plus bait equals temptation. Lust plus bait equals temptation. Lust without bait is not temptation. Bait without lust is not temptation either. But lust plus bait is always temptation. And that's how temptation operates. Now, we turn from the origin of temptation and the operation of temptation to the outcome of temptations. What are the outcomes? What are the possible outcomes of temptation? Basically, there are only two possible outcomes. This is not very profound. It's just accurate. The two possible outcomes of being tempted is yielding to the temptation and sinning or not yielding to the temptation and not sinning. Those are the outcomes. And James uses terminology in verse 15, which is usually reserved for pregnancy and delivery of a baby. Look at verse 15. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You hear all the words of the metaphor that somehow all of this outcome of of temptation has to do similarly to a baby being created and then being birthed? You know, it's rather black and white when it comes to babies. Either a woman is pregnant or she is not pregnant. And if she is with child, she will deliver a child, all things being equal. And that is not in doubt. And if the child delivered is a baby girl, and if time passes and that baby girl grows up to become a woman, then one day that woman can herself become pregnant. And if she does, she too, all things being equal, will deliver a child. Verse 15 is teaching us that yielding to temptation is like our lust becoming pregnant. Yielding to temptation is like the lust within our hearts becoming pregnant. And the child, which we expect when our lust is pregnant, is sin. And sin will be capable of reproduction eventually when it grows up. And fully grown sin has her own baby, and it's named death. Let's put this together. The truth here in verse 15 about the outcomes of temptation is an equation, two equations. The first equation is sin equals lust plus choice and time. Sin equals lust plus choice plus time. And the second equation, death, equals grown-up sin. Death equals grown-up sin. So the first equation, sin equals lust plus choice 
and time, and death equals grown-up sin. Now, I find it very interesting that if I choose to give in to my temptations, then I will sin, and if I sin, I will die. But if I choose not to give in to my temptations, then absolutely nothing negative happens to me. I go on my way, still with my inner lusts that are part of my flesh because of the fall and my depravity. I still have my inner lusts, but I walk away from the temptation that I rejected without any negative consequence when I don't give in. And the bait that was presented to me as a temptation along with my heart's evil desire, guess what? That bait doesn't disappear. That bait flows down the sea to the next believer who has the same lust in his heart as I have in my heart, and he gets the same bait with the lust so that he'll be tempted. And I walk away unscathed when I don't give in to temptation just as long as temptation and bait doesn't come back to me, and it will. Because remember, opportunity knocks, but temptation leans on the doorbell. Ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong. And so this is the anatomy of a temptation. This is how it originates, how it operates, and what are the possible outcomes. Now, in closing this message, I just wonder out loud, can we figure out why God allowed temptation to have this anatomy? Or even more fundamental, why are temptation's origins all within each of us? And why are we all born with sinful lusts in our sin natures? And why won't Christ take away these sinful lusts until we see him face to face? Why wouldn't he take away all of our sinful lusts in our hearts and short-circuit temptation and sin? Why wouldn't Jesus do that? He could. Just like that, when we're saved, he could take away our evil heart's lusts. But he doesn't. Why? I think it's because the Lord wants us to walk in constant dependence upon his Holy Spirit. I think it's because our God intends for us to long for our new, resurrected, and glorified bodies that will not have sinful lusts. I think it's because every particular bait that is presented to each one of us, every single bait calls on us to earnestly call out to God in prayer for strength not to give in to the temptation. Oh, God, help me. I can't do this without the Holy Spirit doing it through me. I don't want to fall. I don't want to dishonor you. Help me. God doesn't take away our lustful hearts immediately at conversion because he wants us to depend on him. He wants us to pray. He wants us to long for our new bodies, our glorified bodies. And why do yielded into temptations give birth to sin, which gives birth to death? Well, that's because of God's justice. God's justice makes the universe go around. God is not capricious, God is not fickle, God is not inconsistent. God says there's cause and effect. 
You can bank on that. There's cause and effect. If you plant corn, you are going to reap corn. There's cause and effect. There's orderliness to God's creation and to social interactions, personality interactions. There's predictability to it. If I do something, then something back is going to come at me that fits with what I did. God's justice, cause and effect, causes him to leave the anatomy of a temptation the way it is. And so I want you to imagine yourself being a medical student. And it's time for you to dissect a cadaver, a human body, left to medical science. And you're standing on the operating table side on the floor. You're looking at this cadaver, this man who died and donated his body to science. And your job is to cut him open and to look into every aspect of his body, his cause of death, all the systems in his body to see how they were working or not working. And let's say this man on the table, this cadaver was a chain smoker. And when you cut into the lung, you see it's black. You see it's full of tar. And it looks to you like there are cancers in those lungs and he probably died of lung cancer. I'll tell you one thing. What do you learn from that as a medical student? You learn never to start smoking. Or you learn if you do smoke to stop. So what did we learn when we cut open a temptation? When the scriptures this morning lets us have an anatomy of a temptation. The origin, the operation, and the outcomes of a temptation. What are we supposed to do? Well, a few things. In the first place, you need to realize this morning that it's not a sin to be tempted. We're all tempted. Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's only a sin if we give in to a temptation. It was Martin Luther, the great reformer, who said this, I cannot keep the birds from flying over me, but I can be sure they don't make a nest in my hair. not sin to be tempted to sin, but it is to get a sin to give in to. What about you here this morning? Nobody knows it except God, but you are habitually giving in to certain temptations and sinning. You have a secret sin of giving in to certain temptations. Is there hope for you? Yes, there's hope for you. God offers you this morning forgiveness for that sin. He offers you forgiveness if you confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you admit your sin, there's an answer. But not just admitting our sin, that's confession and it's important. But don't stop short of repentance. If you have habitual giving into temptation and sin through it, Don't just settle for admitting it over and over and over again to God. I admit it, I admit it, I admit it. But then you don't walk away from it. That's like parking in the bakery's front parking space. You not only have to confess the sin of temptation you've caved into, but you also need to walk away from it in God's strength and for God's glory. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, confesses and forsakes them, confesses and forsakes them, will find compassion. There's hope for the person here this morning who's beset by temptation and giving into it and sinning. There's hope. You have to admit it, confess it, and then you have to walk away from it in God's strength and for God's name's sake. How do you do that? 
let me tell you three things. You get an accountability partner, and you get real with that person. Could be your spouse, that's fine. You get real with somebody else that has skin on about what you are tempted with and how you give into it. And then you ask that accountability partner to regularly ask you, have you given in to the temptation? Then answer truthfully. If you don't want to have your spouse as that accountability partner, you can have another believer who's of the same gender as you. Get an accountability partner if you are beset by temptation and caving into it. And then there's distance. That lady should take a different route home, not even anywhere near the bakery. Tommy Tuna should swim in the sea apart from all herrings. Joseph took off when Potiphar's wife seduced him. You know she was a beautiful woman because she's married to the Pharaoh. She was a gorgeous woman. And she's seducing him. And he doesn't talk about it. He doesn't debate it. He doesn't listen to her overtures. He takes off. He distanced himself from the bait and how the lust of his heart could cave into it. So accountability partner, distance yourself from the bait and take drastic measures. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said this astounding thing. Matthew 5, 29 to 30. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. This is a figure of speech. It's hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to make a point. You know, I could eat a horse is a hyperbole. No comments about eating horse. It's hyperbole. Jesus says, if you have a temptation that keeps coming up that you keep giving into, you take drastic measures like cutting off your hand. But guess what? A thief who cuts off his hand can still steal with his other hand. Jesus said, if you have a besetting temptation that you give into in sin, then pluck out your own eye. Guess what? A one-eyed man can lust after a woman too. In fact, a blind man can lust after a woman. The issue is do something drastic. Get rid of your iPhone. Get rid of your computer. Get a different job if a woman is coming on to you at your work. Do a drastic measure. Get an accountability partner. Distance yourself from the sin and be prepared to take drastic measures. Constantly live controlled by the Holy Spirit. Long for heaven where there's no devil, there's no sin nature, there's no flesh, there's no lustful heart attitudes, there's no temptations. Long for that. Some Christians are so comfortable on earth that heaven doesn't hold much of a bright prospect for them if the truth be told. Some Christians, I've been told, will go feet first in the rapture because they'll be hanging on to their stuff. Long for heaven. Pray about temptations you face. In Jesus' model prayer, we call it the Lord's Prayer sometimes. Lead us not in temptation, for deliver us from all evil. Pray about it. Walk the line. Walk the line. I don't know when you, uh, maybe you've seen on YouTube or maybe you haven't, you can find this on YouTube of construction workers who changed the light bulbs on the statue of the mother of Mary over Rio. Have you seen that statue? 
light bulbs all down here. Actually, maybe it's, maybe it's a statue of the Lord Jesus. I think it is. Either way, light bulbs down the arms of the statue, thousands of feet above Rio. And before the Olympics and all the world came to Rio, they said, some of these light bulbs are burned out. We've got to replace them. How would you like that job? There's a YouTube footage of these guys tethered to the arms of this statue. I'm thinking, what if they break? What if the tethers break? And they're walking the line. They're going down the arms and changing light bulbs. I'm thinking, man, they don't pay those guys enough. Walk the line. Just like they couldn't afford a misstep, they'll die. You can't afford a misstep with respect to where your goat is tied. Walk the line. Bring it back to cause and effect. You know, Satan is a liar. And what he does, he takes a sin that has a price tag and he changes the price tag for a price that's lower than the actual cost of the sin. So we come upon that bait and we say, that's good looking bait. And I have these lustful tendencies toward that bait. And look at the price tag on that bait. It's not something I can't afford. I can actually afford that. So I'm going to take the bait. I'm going to give in to the temptation. But guess what? The cost of the temptation is always high. Can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burnt? None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If I fall into sin, it affects all of you. If any of you fall into sin and temptation, it affects all of us. Bring it back to cause and effect. What a helpful passage. The origin of sin is our own lustful desires. The operation of sin is bait plus lust equals temptation. And the outcomes of every temptation are either giving into it and sinning or not giving into it and coming away unscathed until the next temptation. Church family, may we pray for each other. Pray for the man in the pulpit as he prays for you in the pew that we will not succumb to the barrage of temptations as the devil leans on the doorbell of our lives. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your victory that we sang of earlier in this service. Thank you that we are not orphans. You've left us with the indwelling Holy Spirit who has the very power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and he's resident within us. Help us, Lord, to draw upon that. Help us to hate unrighteousness and sin and to love you and to love righteousness. Help us to walk the line carefully, mindful of cause and effect. Help us, Lord, not to succumb to temptation. For we pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake, amen.